Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And here we are with installment three of our witchy bitches. Different witchy bitches today. Monumental. (laughs) Monumental witchy bitches today. Oh my gosh. Quite the cast of characters. Classically witchy bitches, though. Yes. Situated in the story of the Salem Witch Trials. One of your favorite things to talk about ever. That's correct. (laughs) That's the English teacher in you. (laughs) That's correct. Then I do have some fun trivia about that today. We are talking about Rob Zombie's 2012 The Lords of Salem, (laughs) which I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't what we got. This is unlike anything I've ever seen. It's almost like Suspiria meets, I don't even know. An emo kid. Ginger Snaps. Yeah. But like less funny and more confusing. It begins in a way that I thought it might be funny, but then it becomes anything but funny. It kind of gives me away further instructions vibes, honestly, in terms of how severe it gets so quickly. Mm, that's a good point. Like it you, does. it starts off really lighthearted and then you're like, ooh, wait, this is different than I thought it was going to be. I agree. But lots of really interesting things to talk about for sure. And I'm excited to talk about them. Yeah, so tell me about it. Okay, so first, let's start with the ladies. So yes, this is a Rob Zombie film, and our protagonist is Sherry Moon Zombie, and she plays Heidi LaRock. She also has another name that I will tell you later for funsies. But you know, we're going to spoil everything anyway, but I'll spoil this later. (laughs) (laughs) Then we have Judy Geeson as Lacey Doyle. Judy has been in a lot of things. She's an English film and television actress, and she really committed to the horror thriller genre in the 70s. She's in like five different movies. She's also in a movie called 31. And I'm saying that because our character Margaret Morgan is played by Meg Foster, who is also in 31. So this is the first example of seeing these characters appearing together in other films. They have worked together before. They worked together since. Meg Foster is also in some other things as well, including a 1979 TV miniseries version of The Scarlet Letter, which is very fun for reasons I will also explain later. Okay. (laughs) Then we have Patricia Quinn as Megan. She is best known for her role as Magenta in the 1975 film, The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Hell yeah! Yeah. Do you remember when I dressed up as her in college? Oh my god! Oh my god, yes! Yeah, I-, I can visualize that now. Amazing. And Dee Wallace, our girl Lynn from The Hills Have Eyes. The saving grace of The Hills Have Eyes. Lynn, I was so happy to see her here. She plays the character Sunny. And Dee Wallace, we know she's been in many other things, The Stepford Wives, E.T., Halloween 2007, and The Monsters, Cujo, the whole thing. We also have Maria Conchita Alonso, and she plays Alice Mathias. And I included her because even though her character is minor, I think she plays an interesting role. Her character helps provide some really important information about a curse that's going on. And she is a three-time Grammy-nominated musician, which I think is really cool. And that's not even all the ladies, but those are just the ladies that we see the most of. But this movie is full of women. So really exciting to cover for this podcast. Getting into a little bit of pre-plot trivia, there are no digital effects in this film. I thought that was cool because there are a couple of scenes that I would have thought for sure there would have been some digital effects, but there's not. Toward the end? Yeah. Yeah, okay, okay, wow. I mean, in the beginning, fine, but towards the end, there's a lot of crazy things going on. 
Also, it was filmed in the actual town of Salem. Rob Zombie imagined the witches, and you'll hear more about these three witches, the central witches, as Manson-esque hippies, which I think he succeeded in bringing that vision to life, and you'll hear more about them. And he has also hinted that this film was a metaphorical and spiritual prequel to his Halloween films. Oh? Yes, and I included this for you because I knew that you had seen them. This didn't really mean anything to me. (laughs) And then Bruce Davidson, he's a guy who plays a fellow in this movie. A guy who plays a dude. Um, But he is in the 1996 version of The Crucible, which is also about the Salem Witch Trials. So I thought it was cool that a lot of these characters have played in roles where they've already kind of intermingled with this sort of puritanical Salem Witch Trial lore. And they're in this movie, which is a take on that lore. And I always love seeing that, like when actors get to return to certain stories or worlds, maybe worlds with a twist that Mm -hmm. they have previously explored in other roles. I will say the Halloween movies that Rob Zombie has made do have scenes similar to that psychedelic ending that we're talking about, Mm -hmm. which come out of left field. So perhaps that's the connection. But I don't know, maybe we'll visit them one day and get to talk about it more in length. Maybe we will. And for those of you who need a little refresher, I do have a brief summary of the Salem Witch Trials. (laughs) (laughs) And I did, I could have just written this, but I decided to confirm it with a source just to be official. So the Smithsonian Magazine can corroborate me when I say that the Salem Witch Trials occurred in colonial Massachusetts between 1692 and 1693. We get some flashbacks, and I think that they're after the Salem Witch Trials. I think the flashbacks we get are to the year 1698, if I remember correctly. So not exactly situated in the actual Salem Witch Trials, but definitely like in the town, in the culture. So more than 200 people were accused of practicing witchcraft and 20 were executed. And just some of my own editorializing... I believe a few others died in prison, I think up to five. Mm -hmm. And I know there was at least one, maybe two dogs that were also put to death. No. (laughs) I know, I know. I want to take all the like the fictionalized versions of the witches that died in the Salem Witch Trials and kind of make them like their own little media coven. It's like you get the (laughs) Sanderson sisters and you get the witches in this movie. You know what I mean? I love that. I just kind of want to figure out like how many characters have come about this historical event (laughs) and can we just put them all together and show like the differentiation in representation? You know what I mean? That's actually an amazing idea. I love that so much. I think we can get into the plot. Yeah, let's get into it. So we open with our main girl, Heidi, dozing and driving. She's very sleepy. Okay, I thought she was at least in the passenger seat. She's driving? I thought she was driving. Well, I didn't even know what seat she was in, so she could be driving. Well, I think this may be hinting to the fact that Heidi, our protagonist, has had some problems in the past with addiction. And that's going to become a through line through her character throughout the rest of the movie. But then we get a flashback. Our boy Black Philip is there. Which, fun fact, the goat in this movie in real life was named Noodles. (laughs) (laughs) I love how like Black Philip is just this like authoritarian (laughs) goat in horror culture. But now this one's just like, no, Noodles. (laughs) Noodles. My name's Noodles. (laughs) 
And we get a voiceover from a historical figure, Jonathan Hawthorne. And he is saying, as I write these words, Margaret gathers her coven of six deep within the woods of our beloved Salem. The blasphemous music echoes in my mind, driving me to the points of insanity. I, Jonathan Horth. <laughs> Jonathan Hawthorne. <laughs> <laughs> or a <whore>. Um... <laughs> I, Jonathan Hawthorne, swear before the eyes of God in this day of our Lord in 1696 to destroy all persons which choose to pledge allegiance to Satan in his army. So he's pissed. <laughs> he is pissed. And I will say, fun fact, John Hawthorne was actually a real judge during the Salem Witch Trials. So according to Wikipedia, John was actually the great-great-grandfather of author Nathaniel Hawthorne, born also Hawthorne, just H-A-T-H. And he's author of The Scarlet Letter, which is why I brought that up earlier. Mm. I thought it was cool. But I've read two different theories about why Nathaniel Hawthorne eventually changed his name to add the W. One I read is just for the simplicity of making his name more phonetic. I think a lot of people mispronounce it as Hawthorne mm-hmm. instead of Hawthorne. Right. So the W just makes that a little bit more obvious. However, I have also read that he did it to separate himself from his troubled ancestry because of the role his great-great-grandfather played in the Salem Witch Trials and I guess the shame that carried through the generations, which of course we know the Salem Witch Trials are regarded today as a gigantic mistake. History looks back on those times, and I don't think anybody really sees any witchcraft having taken place. There's a lot of theories as to what maybe happened, including maybe ingesting some bad grain that caused Puritans to hallucinate. There's also a lot of theories about land grabbing, people conspiring against one another, and also the very real sexist reality of Puritan society, which we will get into a little bit later. But when we hear about witchcraft during the Salem Witch Trials in this movie... Obviously, it's not what actually happened in the Salem Witch Trials, or was it? (laughs) Or was it? Well, it's reminding me of our conversation last week with Suspiria about that sense of national guilt that folks in Berlin were feeling because of Nazism and the Holocaust. It's interesting that Nathaniel Hawthorne was trying to separate himself from this sense of history, you know, trying to kind of renounce those mistakes that people in his position just a couple of years ago were making. And it's interesting that that sense was very much still there with the women in Berlin or even the men in Berlin trying to run from that sense of national guilt of like, oh, my God, like our country just did this horrible thing or, oh, my God, I am the effect of this horrible thing. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And he is known for taking a very critical approach of Puritan culture in The Scarlet Letter. Mm -hmm. So I think that makes it very believable that he would definitely want to separate himself from that culture and that reality that he very clearly had issues with. So then we get our first look of this coven in the woods. They are chanting. Our lead witch says, In the name of Satan, ruler of the earth, the king of the world, open wide the gates of hell and come from your blessed abyss. All hail the unholy father. Make your presence known. All together we shall desecrate the virgin whore. We blaspheme the Holy Spirit and we rejoice in his suffering. Lots of shit going on. They're obviously denying Jesus. I wrote, these witches aren't sexy, they're dirty, and I appreciate it, (laughs) because I think that is everyone's first conception of a witch, is this kind of, like, haggard-looking old hag of a witch, and, you know, we had discussed before recording that we have really seen a different gamut of witchcraft representation, 
like the young hot witches, quote unquote, in the craft. And then you kind of get this like high art sense of magic in Suspiria. And this is kind of bringing it more back to its historical roots of missing teeth and long chins and they're dirty and they're not these hot sexy witches that you see in, I don't know, like the second half of The Witch. You know what I mean? Yes. Agreed. But after this flashback is over, which I love a good flashback, we get the title card and then the day of the week, Monday, pops up on the screen. And suddenly we're back in present day Salem. We see a naked Heidi (laughs) face down in thigh high socks, which I thought that's very 2012 Tumblr. (laughs) I wrote Rob Zombie will never miss an opportunity to show us how hot his wife is. Like, (laughs) ever. Oh my God. Yeah, which I mean... I guess on the heels of the previous scene, this is such a contrasting image to right. the older, dirty, decrepit women we've just seen. And now we see beautiful, gorgeous Heidi in her thigh-high socks. She's so pristine. She's in this like super chic apartment with all of this great art everywhere. The apartment. <laughs> First of all, she has two nightstands and she lives by herself, which I think is such a flex. <laughs> you, you live by yourself and you have two nightstands that match. Let alone these nightstands, they're like a box and they just glow. Like the nightstand is the light. I can put my water over here or over (laughs) here, bitch. I got options. She does. So she wakes up to her radio alarm clock. She steps outside to get the mail and I wrote still in her socks because she's hot. It's 2012. It's Tumblr, baby. And she tries to say hi to the new tenant who's standing in the doorway of unit five. But whoever that is, is a spooky shadow person and ignores Heidi. Heidi just kind of brushes it off, goes back inside and takes some pills. Did you see what pills they were? Mm -mm. They looked prescribed. I'm not sure what they were. But then she interacts with her dog and we see that she lives with a dog and they have a cute relationship. We are also introduced to her landlord, Lacey. In this conversation where she's going out to walk her dog, Lacey informs her, there's nobody in five. I don't know what you're talking about. So, okay, this is spooky. She walks her dog, and then we are introduced to Heidi LaRock for Salem Rocks (laughs) with Herman and Whitey. (laughs) So she is a late night DJ. They are a late night rock show in Salem. They are interviewing this metal artist where there's a lot of unsavory radio show host jokes and quirks. They're playing with their soundboard so much. They cannot keep their hands off that soundboard. No, they can't. (laughs) But this guy gave me Crazy Ralph vibes. Yes. Where he's like, we are not the crying sheep of God. We are the mighty goat. The goat has free will. And for that reason, he will always be punished by the unholy God. God is the pig and we serve the butcher. Don't forget that the goat's name is Noodles. (laughs) (laughs) Never forget. But without that context, this dialogue is a lot more freaky. And sinister. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I definitely think some foreshadowing to some of the sinister things that are going to happen. So her shift finishes. And as she's leaving, Heidi receives a package at the station from a band called The Lords. It's a record, so she decides she's going to take that record home with her coworker Whitey, which there's definitely some flirty vibes. They definitely fuck, if not currently before. So Whitey and Heidi. Oh, I just realized. Aww. <laughs> Ooh. Aww. Whitey and Heidi go back to her place. And they're listening to music. The soundtrack in this movie is pretty cool. I like it. It's everything. It's everything that has ever existed. And it's in one movie and it works. Then eventually, after they do some flirting, they decide, hey, 
the music has stopped, let's put on this The Lord's disc that you randomly got. They put it on. We're getting some weird string woodwind type droning music. And Heidi immediately starts kind of acting a little bit weird, like a little bit fatigued or ill. I wrote it's distorted and ceremonial sounding. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. And you're going to hear it a lot. Like a lot, a lot in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like through the trees in Jennifer's body. Mm. You're going to hear it just as often. <laughs> she ends up having visions of the old witches. Mm-hmm. Okay, back in Salem. And these witches, graphic warning. Oh my God. This Yeah, this is a lot. Appear, to, and I'm saying appear to because for this scene, whoever the mother is seems okay scared i thought they sacrificed her as she is that what they did i thought she was like alive still well because that's the thing we heard this in the beginning where they need to sacrifice the virgin whore or whatever Mm. right okay Mm -hmm. so i thought that they were driving a stake or a knife into her as she gives birth killing her as she gives birth to a baby okay that's probably what was happening this is probably one of the parts that my brain starts saying, I'm no. checking out. <laughs> no goodbye. I'm helping you for later. It's also making me think, if, I don't know if you've watched House of the Dragon. No. But like there's also a really, really awful, well, th- that's more of like a botched C-section. This is like a weird, like vaginal, sacrificial birth thing. All I know is Negroni Spagliato <laughs> with Prosecco in it, as I should. That's all I know. That's all you need to it's know. That's all I need to know. <laughs> um, so anyway, this baby is born and the witches are upset because it's this like beautiful, gorgeous, full of life baby. And the witches are like, fuck, like this was supposed to be the Antichrist. And it's not. It's this very confused baby. <laughs> and <laughs> I was so scared. I was so scared because any scene with a baby in it now makes me so nervous post-mother. But we don't see anything bad happen to the baby, although I'm sure something bad did happen to the baby. Doesn't she spit on it? Yeah, but like, compared to what I thought was going to happen to the baby. Right. No, she, I'll take it. She just licks the fluid off of it. Casual. Your vile taste sickens me. Remove this mortal hideous creature. Sisters, we have failed. So this is telling us that the witches are trying to find some sort of vessel for the Antichrist. And this attempt in the 1600s has failed. At this point, Heidi comes back to the music stops. She brushes off her weird visions saying that she just suddenly got super tired, which made me so fucking pissed because she had been like yawning and like shuffling around the apartment for so long before the scene. But I guess she's making up an excuse. Excuses aren't always well thought out. But Whitey's still trying. He is still trying. He wants to get with his woman, but she goes to bed. And oh my God, after he leaves the jump scare, (laughs) she walks past the bathroom. This is the first of many times Heidi does not see anything in her own apartment. She walks past the bathroom and we can see like in the glow of the bathroom that there is a emaciated witchy woman just standing there looking out the doorway. So now we are on Tuesday. Heidi goes out early in the morning and she attends an N.A. meeting. So, okay, we're realizing that this is part of her through line that is continuing. We're back at the station and they are interviewing Francis Matthias. And he is the author of a book, Satan's Last Stand, The Truth About the Salem Witch Trials. I had to Google this to see if it was an actual book. It's not. Oh, okay. (laughs) But but like I got excited. I was like, (laughs) is this actually a scholar right now? Because he looks it. He looks the part. 
And he's the guy that was in The Crucible. He played like Reverend Samuel Paris. Uh, like yeah, bitch oh, ass yes. Samuel Paris, mm. which I kind of love. You know, they're asking him questions, all that kind of stuff. And Heidi asks, are there witches? And he says, there's no classic witches. Witchcraft is nothing but a psychotic belief brought about by a delusional state of mind. So, okay. Heidi then decides to play that Lord's record on the radio. It's the game, Smash or Trash. Smash or Trash. Oh, I missed that. Yes. So I guess their thing is maybe weekly, they play new artists or new songs. And then I guess they let the voters or callers decide if they want to hear that again or Mm -hmm. if they don't want to hear that again. But as they play this record, you see a lot of women all over Salem kind of stop what they're doing in the middle of what they're doing and become entranced by this music. There's like a woman in a pizza shop. There's a woman sitting at her desk. People just stop what they're doing entranced by this music. Matthias asks about this music saying like, hey, where'd you get it? And Heidi confirms, oh, it was sent here and they must have really wanted it to get to me because they used my real name. Okay, your name's not Heidi LaRock. I would never have guessed. (laughs) Then Matthias arrives home, talks to his wife, and says, you know, he can't get this music out of his mind, so he needs to find a way to listen to it again. And he's able to because his wife records his broadcast, which is very cute. It is very cute. They have a very cute relationship. After they have that moment where we know that they're thinking about what's going on, and he, at least, Francis, is catching on to the fact that something isn't quite right, we see Heidi walk home. She sees her landlady. I guess this apartment building is definitely an old house Mm -hmm. or at least an old enough apartment building that has a little bit of like a, not a tea room, but almost like a foyer downstairs, like a little sitting area Mm -hmm. off the real foyer. So landlady Lacey is like, hey, come on in and meet my sisters. And so that's where we meet Megan and Sunny. First, Heidi goes upstairs, freshens up, comes back downstairs and is introduced to these women. And really the most important interaction I think in this scene is the one that she ends up having with Megan. Megan, it turns out, is a palm reader, but someone that doesn't just look at surface level observations. She's able to somehow know what's really going on underneath the surface. And she talks about the fate line on somebody's hand. She says, anything else is inconsequential. She talks about how a lifeline doesn't matter. It's what you do with the time that matters. She says, fate is not the same thing as destiny. Quote, fate leaves you no choice. So again, setting up this idea of fate, this unchangeable fate, what does it mean? And Megan starts giving the most disturbing palm reading ever. Do you have dialogue from this? Yeah, she says, (laughs) you must make peace with your subconscious desires, the wicked thoughts burning inside your head and exploding in the juices between your legs. I just wrote down the word juices. (laughs) (laughs) The darkness within your very soul is the only reason that you exist. And then after that, Heidi's like, yeah, I've heard enough and and pieces the fuck out. And I just wrote, LOL, this reminds me of whenever we'd have a mental health crisis and go get our palms read for $5 on High Street. (laughs) We did do that. And honestly, for me, at least, the only reason that stopped is because she moved. She did move. She moved residences. But yes, we got our palms right in college kind of frequently. (laughs) It was amazing. No regrets. So back in Heidi's apartment, you know, she is on her own now after that weird interaction with those women. She's watching old black and white films because she's so artistic and cool. And when she goes to get some water, she realizes that Troy, her dog, got out of the apartment and he's all the way down the hall scratching at room five. 
So she goes to get her fucking dog and bring him back, super freaky. And then she sees the door swing open once she's back to her unit. And we could see like the glossy paint on the doors, like reflecting this red hue coming from inside the apartment, which is, I thought was really creepy. So Heidi, kind of entranced, approaches and enters the apartment. The door closes slowly behind her, and inside, Heidi is faced with this large red neon outline of a cross, which I thought looked pretty sick. (laughs) No, it does. It really does. She raises her hands up to the cross in a sort of prayerful gesture, and then from behind, we can see that there's some sort of like fuzzy demon. (laughs) It is a fuzzy demon. And then Heidi seems to have a vision of that demon in the woods. Do you remember the specifics of that vision? She's getting visions of hell. There's a hairy beast that walks out of some fire and it growls at her. Mm -hmm. And then she gets like a voiceover saying, sister, feel the earth, taste the air. Do you hear the sound of the clouds and the scent of the wind all becoming one? The horrors of the deceivers are gathering around us. You are the blade by which all will bleed the cunting daughters of Salem. Dear Heidi, bleed us a king, bleed us a king, bleed us a king. And then there is a haggard witch that appears. Then there is a bloody cross on Heidi's forehead. Visions of bent wooden crosses where I'm assuming the witches and the trials were buried. JK, it was a dream and Heidi wakes up scared. Yes. But she turns over and we see like in the shadow of her dimly lit room, there's like a full body torture device swinging next to her bed. Did you yeah, see that? I didn't know if that was like a decoration or what. No I, 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 I got confused. It's I got like confused. One of those, like, it's like a medieval cage, but the cage is in the shape of a human body. So if you're in it, you're not moving at all. Then it's Wednesday. Heidi walks through the woods with Troy. It's a gorgeous fall day. She's walking past a cemetery and heads into a church where she is approached by a priest. <laughs> this is a very bad scene in a disturbing way. Yeah. Successful in that it is disturbing. Trigger warning for essay stuff. So she gets into the church, a priest emerges from the back, bows, and then joins her. He asks, why are you here? And she's like, oh, you know, I don't know. I just felt compelled. And he said, God is always open and ready to listen. And then he puts his hand on her. It seems like it's comforting at first because it's just on her shoulder. But then he says, you're a very sad girl. And then moves his hand further, like closer to the back of her neck. He then shoves her head down into his lap and you can assume what's happening. And he kind of becomes possessed himself. You can tell he's being taken over by something very evil. He says, you have to understand that there is a war waging in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his serpents, but God does not spare angels when they sin, but sends them to hell. You are a filthy whore of Satan. Christ can't save you. Only I can save you. Oh, you must no longer suffer worship and sacrifice the goat idols to whom would you prostitute yourself. You must understand what the Lord has done for you and how he has supreme mercy on your soul. Then after that, the cherry on top is he vomits black bile everywhere. And then Heidi wakes up again. Was a whole dream. The same priest is next to her, but he's looking very concerned, telling her that she fell asleep. So he's the one that woke her up from this dream. She freaks out, leaves the church. As she's sitting outside on the steps, we see a spooky guy walking his goat. (laughs) The masked devil man walking a goat on a leash. I loved that image. I don't know why (laughs) that was like the best. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, while Heidi is seemingly slipping slowly into madness, Francis is doing some research. We get another flashback to Margaret Morgan and her sisters being sentenced to death where they are burned. She is brought to the site of that execution in that torture device that we saw earlier. So I guess that's supposed to be the connection. 
mid-burn, which I was confused by this, they put like a metal mask on her, mm-hmm. which is giving very much like that Leonardo DiCaprio movie where he plays like the French prince. You know the movie? It's kind of like Parent Trap. He plays like twins. Oh, no, I had no idea. It's so bad. But if you want like a delightful watch, <laughs> definitely seek that out. You'll find it. Just be like Leonardo DiCaprio movie where he plays two princes. And then she puts a curse on the town. Yes, essentially puts a curse on all of the women of Salem. Smiles and laughs as she burns to death. And Black Phillip is there. Or Noodles. He is there. <laughs> He's always there. He's a, a noodles, is, noodles is always around. <laughs> um, so then we get a scene of Matthias telling his wife, and I wrote, in her very strangely placed bathtub. Because it's like in their <laughs> living room. Did you notice that? She's like in the tub. No. And it's like right next to their kitchen. Like it's just a bathtub in the middle of the apartment, which is cool, I Sounds guess. Like a dream. But like cold. <laughs> yeah. Like not insulated. I see what you're saying. And he keeps saying how Jonathan Hawthorne referred to the witches as the Lords of Salem. So we got a title drop, but also is that this Lord's record? That's the connection he's making between the music that Heidi received and this coven of witches from the Salem Witch Trials. Then his wife, I guess, gets out of the bathtub and (laughs) starts playing the notes that are in his diary and they match the score of the music that has been played on the radio. So, okay, we are making connections. Heidi arrives to work late and Herman announces on the radio that the Lords of Salem are coming to town for a free show in which they have the tickets. They play their song again and this disturbs Heidi. She gets visions of witches around the fire and Heidi ends up coughing and struggling to breathe and cries in the bathroom at work, which girl, we've all been there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This was making me think of the Dane Cook skit. The crying scene where you're like on the phone. Yeah. Which you showed me when we were like 18. You were like, I just watch this. And I was like, is this me? (laughs) It's the best. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Whitey tries to knock on the door and get to her, but she keeps him out. So even more kind of a heartbreaking moment where we can see that she's really isolating herself. Later, Francis visits the author of the book that he was reading, another book about the Salem Witch Trials. And this was giving very much therapist in the original Suspiria, where he's just this guy that knows a lot and happens to dump all of the information you could ever possibly want at the right time. I wrote, is it law that anyone who studies witchcraft must very conveniently live in Salem, Massachusetts? <laughs> oh because God, he's just walking down the street and he's like, I'm going to go meet with this author that has all the answers I need. Like, you know oh what I mean? That's such a good The author informs Francis of the curse of Margaret Morgan. She, like we know, cursed all the women of Salem, and she calls Hawthorne's bloodline, quote, the vessel by which the devil's child will inherit the earth. So added layer to that curse, she's coming for Hawthorne's bloodline. Again, Jonathan Hawthorne's bloodline. Heidi goes over to Whitey's because she needs to get out of her apartment. They're watching a movie together. Whitey is suspecting Heidi of not being sober due to her increasingly erratic behavior. But Heidi defends herself saying she just thinks the Lord's record is fucking with her. And as she begins talking about it, she starts spitting up blood. Mm -hmm. So Whitey goes to call 911. But then there are creepy faceless men in surgical gear that surround Whitey and then possess him. And then there is a vision of these three faceless surgical gear clad men ripping Heidi's stomach open and pulling out her insides. I wrote, what in the alien is this? Again, another bad dream. So, right. okay, she is like slipping in and out of lucidness. This is getting scary. She wakes up, she takes some pills, she rocks on the toilet and cries. We've all been there too. (laughs) The art on her walls begin to bleed and Mm. whisper her name. 
this leads Heidi to walk to a spooky door and buy some drugs. We are moving. Things are not looking good. And it's Friday. Oh, gosh. So Heidi is getting high in her room when there's a knock. It's the ladies, Lacey, Megan, and Sunny. And they have tea and scones. I said, my kind of gals, invite yourself in anytime if you're bringing me tea and scones. They know how to do it. Meanwhile, Francis is doing research and he realizes that Heidi LaRock's real name is Adelaide Elizabeth Hawthorne, descended from Johnny Hawthorne himself. This is my favorite research sequence of any movie we've watched so far. (laughs) Because... He is on the bio of the Salem Rocks website and in very large, bold letters at the top of the screen, uninvited, it says, real name, colon, Adeline Elizabeth Hawthorne. (laughs) Like, not that he like went finding this. It's like, imagine in your bio at the top of your like your work website, real name. Why even have it? Why even have it? So it's just like, okay. And then he Googles. Oh, no, he doesn't Google. He lookups because that's the Google in this. It's the Klofsks of this movie. He lookups your third favorite website, findyourfamilytree.com, where he just types in Hawthorne, you know, not a unique last name whatsoever, is able to scroll through the family tree and find out that Reverend Jonathan Hawthorne is one of Heidi's family members. And he's like, Reverend Jonathan Hawthorne? Fuck me! Man, no wonder this guy is a published author. Research is so easy for him. If it was this easy for us in college, we would have gotten our degrees so much sooner. I was just laughing at the ease in which this man was finding everything he needed with lookups.com and findyourfamilytree.com. Maybe he's the witch. Maybe he is. (laughs) So he tries to call her, but she is busy being lulled to sleep by the witches. She's hardly hanging on to reality. They put her in some sort of wheelchair and take her over to room five, and they take turns summoning Satan outside the doorway. Oh, Father, you give us the venom. Fill us with your essence. Fill us. Again, with this Mm -hmm. fucking imagery. Let it burn through our souls and minds. We trample on the cross. We spit on the book of lies. We desecrate the virgin horror. We blaspheme his Holy Spirit, and we rejoice in his suffering. Guide this child still in the shackles of the oppressor. Help her break free from his tyrant ways. Entice her to take the precious bite from whence she will be delivered. You are our dragon lord, Satan. Satan teaches everybody how to be such poets around him. Oh, yeah. I kind of love that. It's like, if you're going to be my follower, you need to know how to talk to me. Sound correct. (laughs) If you want to be my follower, you better ravish me. Yeah. All of a sudden... This door opens, and on the other side, there's this gorgeous, elaborate, cathedral-looking grand staircase situation. Heidi gets up, walks through the door, and her face, Heidi's face has become painted like the girlies do for Halloween. I wrote, now in kiss makeup. (laughs) (laughs) Then Heidi gets to the top of these gorgeous stairs, and a demon baby bug thing reaches out its umbilical cords, plural, and they attach themselves (laughs) I wrote Mandrake with tentacles. Yes! And I I realized, and I wanted to say this now, because I wrote Mandrake from Harry Potter, and I realized the past three episodes I've made Harry Potter references, and I think it's very obvious in the sense that J.K. Rowling <laughs> made a world of witchcraft and wizardry where there's a lot to pull from, but mm-hmm. fuck J.K. Rowling and her turf ass. Mm-hmm. We don't support her. Anyway, moving on. 
Well, this baby's umbilical cords reach out and attach themselves to Heidi's wrists. We have a weird, weird, weird moment where there is some kind of weird, weird attachment. This is It's like also- a devilish hopscotch. <laughs> Because yeah. of the shaking. Wait, oh, with like, like, let's play double dutch? Yeah. Yes. That's exactly what it looks like. Playground games. Okay. Next thing you know, Heidi emerges from the room. We don't really understand what happened. The three witches return her to the bed. And as Heidi lays there, the fully, <laughs> it's supposed to be like a demon baby, but it's very large, appears next to her and watches her sleep. Now, do you think this impregnated her? Yes. Yeah, that's what I thought. Which is interesting because the baby impregnated her with the baby. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like not what I expected. Like maybe this baby has just been waiting in this realm and so it needs to find a host. Yeah, so that's what happens. It is Saturday. Saturday. Whitey is overlooking the water, calls Heidi and tries to check in with her, but she's blowing him off. But he says he's there for her. She's ignoring his calls. She hangs up only to reveal that Lacey is in the room with Heidi. And it's like, you love him, don't you? So again, very sad. So Matthias walks over to Heidi's building, approaches it, but Lacey is there to greet him saying, I look after Heidi, but invites him in for tea, which we know is not a good thing. The sisters are there. Megan is continuing to be unhinged, trying to tell prophecies and shit like that. I said this scene is very good at building tension because, you know, Matthias is trying to lighten the mood and I forget who says it, but someone says, why are you laughing? I'm not laughing. Is something suddenly funny? I was like, yeah, "Yeah." it switches quick. It moves from like, haha, small talk. It's so cordial in here to like, you're not getting out of here, Francis. So next thing you know, right after that tone shifts, Sonny has come up behind Matthias and knocks him over the head with a frying pan. He shortly wakes up and finds them reading the book, The End of the American Witch, that he had brought along with him. And they proceed to beat him to death with the frying pan. And then the ladies make more tea. (laughs) The demon upstairs is roaring from room number five and making all the lights swing. And we feel very much those that something is going to happen very soon. Yeah, a faceless nun, question mark, looks at Heidi while she sleeps in a red lit room. Whitey arrives trying to pick Heidi up for this Lord's concert. She answers the door, falls into him and cries. But of course, fucking Lacey is there to intervene and take Whitey away. I'm like, no, save her. (laughs) Yeah, it's really hard because Whitey is, for all intents and purposes, he's a nice guy. Mm -hmm. We see nothing but great things from him. Eventually, I guess the witches let Heidi go to the show. With Whitey. Yeah. And she arrives with him and they meet Herman. And then before they go in together, Heidi goes ahead, turns around and says bye, and then shuts the door behind her and locks out her boys. So she's going in alone and they're not coming in. I guess she's saving them. I I don't know. We are getting that sense, especially with this like love angle. Then the show begins. The three witches, Lacey, Megan, and Sunny take the stage. I wrote three wish Sanderson sisters. (laughs) They are so much like that. And they, again, summon Satan, and he arrives with his crew, I said, all backlit and cool. They, like, materialize from backstage. There's, like, fog. They're in silhouette. It's very scenic. But wait, it's actually Margaret and the Coven of Six. Is she, like, actual Satan? Mm -hmm. Because if she is, that's really cool. But I don't know. Because they clearly, don't they say Satan? They say, Lord, hear us. We are ready to bring your precious child into this world. In memory of Satan, you preach punishment and shame to those who emancipate themselves and repudiate the slavery of the church. Satan, come to us. We are ready. 
And then Heidi is on the balcony overlooking this very sparse audience. The original coven joins on stage and say, welcome, horse of Salem. (laughs) Nice. I can taste the foul stench of your ancestors rotting in the folds of the filth between your legs. (sighs) Nice. The (laughs) (laughs) The blood of your deaths shall be the eternity of our resurrection. Heidi, you're the one. We've been waiting for you. We've always been waiting. And then the fucking song starts. And did you notice that this is Saturday? It's the sixth day. Oh, I didn't. Uh Uh-huh. None of this movie happens on a Sunday. Okay. Well, I figured that. (laughs) I did notice that, but I didn't realize it was the sixth day. And as the music starts playing, all of the onlookers begin to disrobe, including the audience members and Heidi. Heidi, then we get some really weird things. Like we leave the theater. It looks like she's sitting in like the theater lobby. She's on a bench. And I was like, is this the same theater? I don't know. There's a high pitched sound that plays as a burnt priest and a bunch of naked women in pig masks approach her. The priest masturbates Mm -hmm. and Heidi grinds with a man in face paint. Then Heidi rides a goat and then a baby is crucified and then other weird visions are playing. So we're in a psychedelic state. A lot of Suspiria imagery, honestly. Yeah. Just like a lot of distorted, weird images happening at once, but it is all very sexual in nature. The coven lays her down and says, He was our Lord Satan that took you to the mill of the grave so that you should thus become the bread and the blood for revelation and revulsion. They start speaking in tongues and they put hands on her body and screech. Blood begins to emanate between her legs and she gives birth to something with tentacles flailing. And I wrote, This is reminding me of the thing in the toilet in Mother. Oh, I'm like, there's got to be some sort of fucking connection here. Because remember, the wife went on the toilet and there was that little fucking crawfish looking thing in the toilet and mother that mother then flushes down. And that's exactly what this fucking shit looks like. The Antichrist looks like this fucking crawfish tentacle flailing thing. That's really interesting. Like, what is the connection between this weird sea creature and the Antichrist? Yeah, I really don't know. But Margaret cradles this devil baby. Lacey and the sisters are back on stage. They're smiling. Heidi has whited out eyes and is in a crown. She's bathed in white light, dressed in a white sparkle getup. This is giving hereditary. Yeah. Like payment stuff. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. Like this corpse is now this religious idol. And she's sitting on the corpses of all of the naked dead concert goers. That scene cuts out. We get this scene of Heidi in a park playing with her dog in slow motion. Like a beautiful little tribute to is Heidi. She dead? Or is Troy dead? Did they do something to Troy? I hope they didn't. Do I don't know. Like, Troy. is this saying this is her life the way it was? Is this saying, you know, she at least gets to live in her version of paradise? I don't know. But then after that, the movie's still not over. (laughs) The movie ends with this news report voiceover that's talking about a mass suicide that took place in Salem the night before. All of the deceased are original Salem residents with bloodlines going back hundreds of years, which how would you... How would you know that? That's exactly my thing. I'm like, they know enough to know oh, they're all... because they were part of the, like a, some historical society or something. Yeah, but I'm like, you know they're all descendants of original members of Salem, but you don't know enough to know the motive. What the fuck? <laughs> and then they say Heidi is also missing. We don't really get confirmation as to what happens to her. And that's it. That's the end of the movie. Okay, so I have some stuff. 
Before we recorded this, you said something to me. You were like, I love that this movie has witches that are just old lady witches. Mm-hmm. And that stood out to me. So I did a little bit of research on old, powerful women. In Lynn Stewart Paramore's 2019 NBC article, This Halloween, Remember Witch Hunts Were Created by a Patriarchy Terrified of Older Women, the power that postmenopausal women hold is discussed specifically. So first, she reminds us that during the Salem Witch Trials, quote, out of the 16 falsely accused women, because there were a couple men, at least 13 were past their childbearing years. There appears to be a clear vendetta against older women in Salem, not just in that one case, but in many other societies as well, like historically over the years. However, some scholars assert that it is the older women of a society that helps that society flourish. One theory is known as the grandmother hypothesis, or the idea that humans have developed the biology of menopause because it's better suited for the survival of the community if older women turn their attention away from their own reproduction to caring for others' reproduction. So Paramore says, quote, scientists know of only five species in which females outlive the reproductive stage. Humans are special in this regard, along with killer whales, where older females ensure the species survival by guiding their pods to food sources. Until the last few decades, many researchers assumed that in humans, this trait was a useless quirk or the unintended result of some other adaptation. Turns out that the phenomenon is a happily adaptive feature, not a bug. In her deeply researched new book, The Slow Moon Climbs, The Science, History, and Meaning of Menopause, historian Susan Matern presents strong evidence that menopause likely evolved in our Paleolithic past as part of a flexible reproductive strategy that bestowed our ancestors with crucial advantages. It helped them both thrive in good conditions when older women were able to forage and help care for children and make it through tough times when resources were scarce and less reproduction was beneficial. Isn't that crazy? If you look at what Margaret's doing this entire movie, she's just trying to make another woman give birth. Yeah, because she can't. Because she can't do it herself. Yeah. So then I was thinking, so if women past childbearing years were so important, why would a society then continue to alienate them? Paramore cites historian Stephen Katz in her assertion that, quote, such women, especially those who never had children, were considered the female group most difficult to assimilate into the male-dominated social matrix. They may appear to exist outside the boundaries of society, using their knowledge and power to alter or escape the normal laws of the universe. They are unnatural. Paramore also mentions that destitute, impoverished older women were often targeted as witches because of the, quote, economic burden they had, as well as healers or other women that defied social expectations. For example, there's a theory that one of the reasons Bridget Bishop of the Salem Witch Trials was accused was because she was in a land dispute. And of course, land was only to be disputed by men. So to get her out of the equation, accuser of witchcraft. So in this sentiment, it's cool seeing old witches remain old in this film because historically they have such power. They get to remain powerful without restoring any sense of conventional beauty, and their age actually puts them at an advantage because they don't need to actually birth the Antichrist. They just need to find somebody who can't, so they don't have to die. They just need to find a host to do what they need them to do. The younger, more naive Heidi in this movie is a victim to their power and experience. 
Yeah, it really is interesting being that if you look at it strictly from a patriarchal lens, these women really do serve no purpose to, you know, Jonathan Hawthorne or anybody in Salem because they're not mothers. They can't bear children. They're not mothering other people. They're not these healers or these older, wiser women. They're just out there believing their own beliefs, which are not in the mainstream of what they want. Thus, it must be satanical. And in this case, it is. Yeah. But but like historically, was it actually probably not? They probably just wanted to do their own thing. But because they weren't aligning to those, you know, mainstream functions of what a woman was meant to do, of course, they're outlandish. And if you think of Puritan society, because of the reality that they were trying to make a life in this quote unquote new world where they perceived threats from every direction, whether it was Native Americans or the natural devil lurking in the woods, their whole survival relied on group think. They Mm -hmm. needed everyone to think and feel the same way so they could stick together and actually have a shot at surviving in this life that they chose. So You know, somebody trying to break away from that norm, whether it was something as simple as a woman reading a book, was seen as a threat to their lives. And so I think in those extreme conditions, it's easy to see how those extreme results could happen. But it is interesting, too, because we still see modern witch hunts. We see a lot of women associated with witches. And there was a, an example in this article about, you know, people calling Nancy Pelosi a witch, or there's a woman in English politics that they would call a witch as well. Like these women who society perceives as past their prime are automatically labeled as witches. And we see this really similar rhetoric pervade through the years. I mean, this isn't one and done. This is continuing. And on that note, this movie is also a classical tragedy. So we're talking like Aristotle tenants, Shakespeare shit. And it's like, Mr. Zombie. (laughs) (laughs) So just a review. Elements of a classical tragedy include one central character, usually from wealth or nobility, a tragic flaw, one unified continuous plot, and or hubris, hamartia, catharsis, and fate. So first, of course, Heidi is our main character. Although she's a working woman, she comes from an important bloodline spanning back to the early days of Salem. The curse put on her bloodline and eventual rise to being the mother of the Antichrist makes her noble in a twisted way. Her tragic flaw, which is also the Hamarsha part, which is like the unknowing sort of flaw, could either be being part of that bloodline or playing the Lords of Salem music on her show. In either case, she unknowingly becomes subject to her fate. Again, fate being defined in the movie by Megan as something that, quote, leaves you no choice. It is predetermined by forces stronger than ourselves. The movie takes place over six consecutive days, Monday through Saturday, leaving catharsis to take place in the final moments of the movie when we see Heidi playing with her dog, Troy, seemingly to remember the identity that Heidi once held so dear. So this classical structure, I think, is really interesting, especially in such a modern film adaptation. So while the elements of this movie are contemporary and different, very different, this story resembles Aristotle's model for tragedy, which creates an almost hopeless feeling around fate and one's inability to interfere with it. You know, this is a new story, new characters, really different ideas, different film techniques, but it's the same story. It's the same fate. So I think that there's something really haunting about that. In the 2018 article, The Tragedy of Fate in the Lords of Salem by Emily Von Seal, she elaborates on Heidi's part as a tragic hero. 
Von Seal writes, quote, As much as Heidi's life has seemed to be her own, it is now fully out of her control. Her fate has always been in the hands of the coven. This is what makes the Lords of Salem such a tragic tale. Yes, it is satanic as all hell and insanely disturbing, but it is also the story of a woman whose future is taken completely out of her hands. Though this was always to be her fate, it was not a finishing line that she would necessarily have chosen to cross herself. The film highlights the sense of tragedy beautifully in the final shots. Instead of focusing on the fate that engulfs Heidi, it focuses on the life that she left behind when that fate rose up. We see footage of her playing with her dog in the park, smiling and happy. We see Heidi the person, the woman, not the vessel that she was chosen to be. By the end of the film, fate has taken control and that person is gone. Addiction was a central part of her character Mm -hmm. because it brings back the idea that you can be so on track with something and you can have this identity in this life, but there's this thing that if you give into it or if it takes hold of you, it can feel like you're helpless to it. It can feel like it's fate. It can feel like you have no control. And I think having Heidi be an addict and have her go through these things, it's almost like you're watching her go through a downward spiral in that sense, even in the way that Whitey points out. It's just like, are you sure you're okay? Like all this kind of stuff. But I imagine that this faded line that she's experiencing just through her bloodline or through this sense of she's always meant to be this vessel, she's always meant to be the carrier of the Antichrist must be what it feels like when she was in the throes of addiction of this is just what's meant for me. I can't escape what's already here. I can't escape what I'm going through. I can't make this thing that I'm escaping go away. So do I just dive deeper into it? And that's what Mm. she does. I mean, Mm -hmm. she does eventually accept that this is her fate and give birth to the Antichrist. She just ends up this like lifeless vessel of this thing that's going to live beyond her, whether it be through her family line, which is what's been proven. Like, Mm -hmm. obviously, she's the vessel. So what failed before her to where those women couldn't be the vessel? Is she just the first woman? Like, I was thinking about that. That is such a good question. I'd really want to know. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's almost been 400 years. That's a long time not to have a woman. Yeah. Yeah. So I also couldn't help but think about Von Seal's assertions within the context of post-Roe America. Right. I mean, because forced childbirth. So Heidi has an amazing job. She's in love with somebody who seems wonderful by all accounts, and she seems confident in her aspirations and expression. And your point about her overcoming addiction also shows how much she fucking fought for it. She laughs, she jokes, she's happy, but she is forced to bear and birth the Antichrist, thus reducing her to a mere vessel. And she's lost in the process physically and mentally. And I think it's interesting also, just, you know, looking at this for metaphorical purposes, (laughs) it's interesting also watching a group of old women hold this control over Heidi. Yeah, really. And I think it shows that any control Heidi had over her life was always temporary or illusionary. I also think it's extra cruel that, again, women are the ones that ultimately use and abuse Heidi. The coven also causes the death of 35 other women in Salem, again, showing the horrifying cycle of women abusing women and that trauma isn't just felt in parallel generations, but in generations situated hundreds of years apart. Very Suspiria. Yes. I'm thinking of the men we see in this movie, aside from the dream priest. All of the men we see are, they're fine. Yeah. They're great. They're funny. They seem- To have their best interest in mind. Yeah, yeah. But it's the women here. 
the witches are the ones that are taking advantage of Heidi. And kind of what we talked about with Suspiria too, this idea of like the mother turning the stereotype of the mother on its head. It's like we're seeing these older women and we might think with like the grandmother idea, these older women should be supporting Heidi if this is what biologically menopause is supposed to do. Like we can have like a really fluent society, but we don't see that here. It's like Anne Helene in Ready or Not, where she's like so ready to sacrifice (laughs) somebody for like the stake of the family growing in, you know, in whatever way that she needs. And I think when we took on this witch theme, you know, we were, I guess, envisioning this idea of like just the all powerful woman, because, you know, when you think of witches, that's the sense. But I didn't really expect there to be this like women hating women or women oppressing other women. And it's present in all of them. Like Nancy trying to take Bonnie Rochelle and Sarah down. Mm -hmm. And obviously Madame Blanc and Marcos trying to overtake Susie. And like now this, it's like you didn't expect there to be such a predatory nature, but there is. And it makes me wonder, at least with the craft, I get the sense that it didn't have to be that way. Right. And same with Suspiria. It seems like there's a lot of politics going on. People were getting caught up in these politics. There's some lying. <laughs> Madam Marcos, excuse me, you are not one of the original sisters. Yeah, fuck off, Roz. This is the first one that kind of makes me think, would this just be so integrated into the lore of witches? Right. I mean, and, and it's that idea of sacrifice. You always have to have sacrifice to get whatever power or result that you want. It's just making me wonder, like, do witches in their lore, in their existence, does it always have to be like a sacrificial manner? Or is that something that they've adopted from having to be integrated into our own patriarchal society? I don't know. Like there's an element of competition that's necessitated into it where it isn't, but we think there has to be, you know? Right. I would like to think that there doesn't have to be. I love thinking about witches as, again, that all-powerful sisterly situation. But you're right. All three of these movies very much have women against women as one of the central conflicts. So interesting. It is. And even thinking back to The Witch, Robert Eggers' 2015 film, you know, we see that really awesome scene at the end where Thomason is integrated into that coven, but only after her whole family is killed. Like, only after she is so beaten down by the events caused by the witches. So it's still like, even some of the best scenes we have, it's attached to this sacrificial, abusive culture. It makes me think of Danny in Midsummer too. Yes! Because you see those women supporting her and breathing yes. with her and validating her trauma, but like, now girl, you're causing it. <laughs> yes! Yeah. I agree with you. I don't think I expected to find myself here, but we're here. <laughs> we're here. That's the end of our witchy bitch season. Yes. I think like Cannibal Power Hour, this might very well be something that we return to. As far as their role in the horror genre, I know that they are very prevalent. Plenty to choose from there. But if you would like to email us, get a hold of us, feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com or feel free to follow us on Instagram, also at thehorrorspodcast. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.